Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Balkwell's Books. I am Balkwell,、uh, and this is Balkwell's Books, a podcast and a video show on YouTube、uh, about books, hosted by me, Balkwell, starring me, Balkwell. And today's book, we are exploring the world of William Shakespeare. And specifically, we're covering the play as you like it. Now, I'm not going to get too in depth on the particulars of as you like it, mostly because、uh, there's not much depth to be found.、Uh, I happened to see this play being performed last weekend, and as is generally the case with William Shakespeare,、uh, it was an adaptation. Uh, that moved the time period of the play、uh, to the 1960s. Setting in space was moved to、uh, the Pacific Northwest, where I live, and interspersed into the play were songs by the popular 60s band, The Beatles.、Um, all that is really neither here nor there. However, I did find it notable、um, how little a difference this change in setting and time actually made、uh, to the play. Now, I talked about、uh, Shakespeare adaptations、uh, briefly in my episode about Tribulations of a Chinese Man in China by Jules Verne. And I mentioned it、uh, in a discussion of how, you know, transferring or adapting a text. From one setting to another, from one time period to another, across cultures, can greatly change <clears throat> the thematic content of the work itself. And I think that is generally true. However, I did find in this case that it was untrue. And there are a couple reasons, I think, for this. The first、um, is a function of the adaptation itself. The adaptation that I saw really had not much interest beyond a superficial level in this change. Primarily, it seemed to be an excuse to put Beatles songs in and make it a musical, which is just、uh, out of a desire for more popularity, and to make the、uh, environment more familiar to the, the watcher, the audience. In terms of the actual changes、uh, made to the play to reflect the sort of centuries、uh, that have passed since the play was written and the thousands of kilometers that the play has crossed to reach the Pacific Northwest from England, not much was done. And, this, you know, it's a fairly conservative、uh, adaptation, which is perfectly reasonable.、Uh, and part of why it is reasonable actually. Feeds into the, the second thing going on here, which is that as you like it as a play, much like many of Shakespeare's comedies, really has little、uh, thematic content, little specific thematic content that relates to the actual plot, the overarching plot of the play. And what I mean by that is this as you like it is a story about. 
uh, several characters, several groups of characters being exiled from court due to these sort of relationships between their parents who are in political intrigues for reasons that we don't know about. These political intrigues and the reasons for their exiles and all this are actually somewhat complicated to explain all at once, as I found the first time I tried recording this video. And the reason they're complicated to explain as someone who recently watched the play is not because they're complicated in themselves, but because they have basically no um, influence on the play itself outside of setting up the fact that these characters need to go in a forest. Once the characters are in the forest, all this sort of intrigue, this framing, completely is expelled from the mind of the audience or the reader in favor of this sort of comedic and uh, ironic uh, interactions between the characters who many, uh, a few of which are in disguise and etc, etc. The resolution of the play, the resolution of all these conflicts that are set up at the beginning, uh, happens in the form of a man who we have not met who jumps onto the stage in the final scene and says, Hello everybody, you don't know who I am, but everything is resolved now. Thank you, goodbye. So it, it's really... Like in many of Shakespeare's comedies, the, the sort of wilderness, the forest that these characters enter negates the outside world and is a world in itself. This sort of parochial theme of if you head out into the woods or into the rural landscape, time itself, um, I mean, as in the flow of history, ceases to matter. Histori historicity uh, is no longer of any importance. Political matters are of no importance. It is a timeless, idyllic world of shepherds and, and such forth. So that's kind of interesting. And what that allows for in the play is a, a certain purity in the motivations of the characters. Um, and I don't mean the sort of moral purity, because it is quite a body work. There's many sexual innuendos and, and, and such forth. But what I mean is that they're, although they are involved in this political intrigue, this actually has very little effect on their interactions. And they, as we see in the case of the two main characters, so we have Orlando, this sort of youngest son whose, whose dad has passed away. His dad is a, a duke or something. And Rosalind, who has been exiled and has chosen to stick around, but uh, in disguise as a man named Ganymede. So what's going on there is that <clears throat> Orlando, for reasons unknown to really anyone, except maybe a 20-year-old version of myself, decides to write love poems and stick them to trees or carve them on trees uh, around the forest because that's how you show your love uh, when you're a regular person. Rosalind, disguised as Ganymede, 
sees these, realizes that he's pretty in love with her. Uh, she's in love with him, too. She makes up this idea where she, as Ganymede, will help Orlando free himself from his infatuation uh, via a sort of role play between the two, where Orlando pretends that Ganymede is Rosalind. The joke here being that Ganymede is, in fact, Rosalind, right? And so you end up with all these funny situations between these two. At the same time, there are a couple other couples involved in love triangles and some city versus rural uh, misunderstandings, such forth and such forth. Now, what I think I enjoy most about this particular play and why I think it's perhaps my favorite of Shakespeare, uh, of Shakespeare's plays in general and definitely my favorite of his comedies, is the fact that it, it, it is so artificial, this whole thing. And it, it, it takes the tropes that we associate with theater in general, but particularly uh, with Shakespeare, and takes them to extremes. You know, usually you have a couple, maybe two couples or, you know, that, that end up falling in love throughout the play. And this one we end with four weddings all happening at once. Usually you have a character who plays the fool, who uh, offers sort of pregnant insights, um, poignant insights in the, uh, in the guise of jokes and just saying silly things off the top of his head. Uh, in this, there are two of them, and they end up interacting with each other uh, in, in strange ways. What I mentioned before with the, the resolution of plot elements are handled so cavalierly and so suddenly and so stupidly that, that it, it, it's clear that no, almost no thought was put into that at all. The audience is made through the middle portion of the play to just completely ignore all this. And at the end, something needs to resolve because everyone's stuck in a forest. At some point, they need to get out of there. And, you know, it's a comedy, so we have to look toward the future um, and that they're going to live their lives and be happy. So we have some guy run in and say everything's okay. When it comes to Orlando's conflict with his elder brother that is set up at the beginning of the play and made to be Orlando's main motivating uh, aspect of his entire life is resolved off stage when Orlando's brother, who's sort of the villain, I guess, is mauled by a lion. You know? The, the whole play is so artificially constructed and yet so sort of masterfully constructed in its artificiality that it feels like it shows a, a total understanding of what is going on here, the relationship between the audience and the play, the what people are expecting out of this play. And it is thoroughly devoted to entertainment. It's only function is entertainment. I, I could see an argument by someone that this novel has thematic content, 
there it's very possible but for the most part this play is is like a clown show you know and many comedies are i mean that's kind of the function of comedy in many respects is to be a bit of a clown show and theater in general um particularly musical theater which this play became in this adaptation by with the beatles songs it's not a uh, it's not a psychological form you know it's not like a novel where you're trying to really understand something it, it really is a, you know theater has this sort of bombast to it and it's not reaching for solitary uh, emotions you know it's not reaching for those emotions that we experience when we're by ourselves uh, and we're sad or something or these kind of philosophical uh, ideas we may have it is a communal experience you know we have these people on the stage and they have to yell so we can hear them and they have to make you know exaggerated gestures with their body so that we can see what they're trying to represent obviously with this you lose you know all the subtlety of of motion subtlety of of facial expression that you might get in something like film when you are you know very uh, intimate or you can get the camera can get very intimate with the actors in theater you don't have that so it, there is this playing to the fact that there are you know like a hundred people gathered here and they're all looking at this one space uh, and they're all looking together they're all sat right next to each other and there's all this um, aspect of bringing the the entire audience in and I think that this is why I find Shakespeare's comedies definitely work more for me than his tragedies and this is probably a result of living in the time that we do where film has for the most part superseded theater in terms of being taken seriously um, or vaunted as an art form that a large groups of people actually care about I mean theater it's a niche interest for sure it's a niche art form at the moment who knows what will happen uh, in the future but growing up now you definitely we, we don't have this appreciation for theater put into us growing up most people don't really experience theater growing up um, I didn't experience very much of it for sure and so it is hard to sort of wrap your head around it what exactly is, is going on and there are people who you know jump in three feet jump in with all three of their feet uh, jump straight in and, and really enjoy theater from uh, immediately uh, there are people like me who, who who find it hard to appreciate and generally when I experience plays I just read them in a book and you don't really get much out of them doing it that way uh, I find what what is interesting about Shakespeare is the way these two forms combine the poetic and the dramatic now much drama over the centuries over history was written uh, in poetry uh, or in song or things like this uh, nowadays most 
uh, theater is has more naturalistic dialogue. But um, Shakespeare sort of stands in the middle there, where there is naturalistic di- dialogue, and then there is poetry and soliloquizing and etc. And what's interesting about Shakespeare, um, and I'm talking about Shakespeare as a cultural uh, icon, a cultural phenomenon, uh, specifically in the English-speaking world, and our ability to receive Shakespeare in the modern day, the modern era, 500 years uh, after it was composed and, and first performed, is that there is sort of two poles to the appreciation of Shakespeare. And these poles generally coincide with those who enjoy the poetry, the poetic aspect, and those who enjoy the sort of theatrical aspect. When you look at William Shakespeare, and you look at the way these plays are constructed, often the most workmanlike aspect of the play is the plot. And what I mean by this is things come together very perfectly. I mean, we see in As You Like It is obviously a very exaggerated um, example of this. But I've discussed earlier in the episode the fact that these plot points are just sort of arbitrarily slammed into the play um, when they need to happen. And I think this is something that has often disturbed me or perturbed me uh, regarding Shakespeare's plays, um, and particularly in the tragedies, is that this sort of convenience feels arbitrary at times, and often the ending feels to just slam into the play out of nowhere. And you get sort of these ridiculous instances, such as the ending of Macbeth, when it turns out that the witch's prophecy uh, did not take into account Caesarean sections. Now, this is, this makes the play seem ridiculous, you know, it is such a sort of quibbling matter, such a trifling matter. Um, it's almost like a joke at the end of the play, uh, at the end of a tragic play that, that we are meant to be taking seriously. And I think for someone used to more naturalistic forms, such as the novel, these sort of endings or these sort of coincidences or convergings uh, can can take us out of the play and make us appreciate it less. And there have definitely been times when I when I get almost frustrated with Shakespeare, because the the poetry is immaculate, it truly is, and this is why lines of Shakespeare have survived uh, over the centuries. This is why it is so influential on the English language. The the blank verse, the soliloquies. They have this flow to them. They have this... It is just very well-constructed poetry. It's very beautiful at times. And it's injected into this form, this theatrical, this dramatic form that almost seems to undermine it. This is why Shakespeare seems to occupy almost these two poles. Because... When we are taught about Shakespeare, and I'm 
talking about a North American English-speaking person in high school. We're introduced to Shakespeare. And obviously the first barrier of entry is going to be the language. The language, however, is why we're there. I mean, the poetry is, is why we read Shakespeare. However, you have to get someone to understand what this poetry means. Like, literally what these words mean that, you know, we don't use anymore. And how blank verse is constructed and read uh, before it can be appreciated. In order to get people to do that, in order to make people do that work to learn, teachers have to make Shakespeare seem like it's interesting and exciting. And this can be sometimes cringe-inducing because teenagers don't listen to adults when they tell them what is interesting and exciting about things. And, and what, what is used, what is sort of the entering entrance point, the gateway to Shakespeare, is the plots, is this, these ridiculous circumstances, is ends of plays where everybody dies or is, and is killed. It is quibbles about C-sections. It is uh, the comedy. It is Rosalind and Orlando talking to each other and, and Orlando not knowing who she is. Like, this is the sort of part that, that appeals to the audience uh, immediately uh, on a very uh, an immediate level you know not to say it's superficial entirely but it is the first thing that captures us it is only after we are captured in the play that we can come to appreciate uh, the language that we can come to appreciate the the symbolism in the poetry and the flowing nature of it. And I think this, trying to reconcile these two elements of Shakespeare, uh, is often the great difficulty. And my difficulty is that I like poetry and generally don't like theater. Probably many other people's problem will be the reverse. Now, the, the, an example I like to think of uh, in terms of the reception of William Shakespeare is Leo Tolstoy. And this is something I heard about Leo Tolstoy, and I can't remember where I read it. So I hope it's true. If it's not true, uh, let's treat this as a little bit of fiction. Uh, fiction can be true in its own way. So Leo Tolstoy, reportedly, near the end of his life, decided to reread the entirety of Shakespeare's works. We can assume the plays. I'm going to assume the plays. Not necessarily the, the sonnets. And he did this not out of love for Shakespeare, but to confirm his belief, his long-held belief, that Shakespeare was a hack. And so he read all the works, one after the other, and in the end he said, yes, I was right. Shakespeare was a hack. And I find this hilarious. I mean, I really can't expect less from Tolstoy who was such a, a, a realistic writer, whose characters speak naturalistically, and who is, of course, going to be reading the works in translation, where much of the sort of point of the poetry, or much of the sort of elegance of the poetry, is likely going to be lost. But at the same time, Tolstoy is a man after my own heart. Because 
if you look at Shakespeare primarily as a teller of of plots, or as someone who's meant to be taken, whose plots are meant to be taken seriously, to have real meaning for us, it is easy to get lost in the ridiculosity and the ludicrosity of these plots. But the plots are merely a vessel. What's beautiful about As You Like It is that the plot is so secondary as to almost be tertiary. You know what I mean? And the plot just gets the heck out of the way, and you have people speaking to each other interestingly. And people speaking of things like love, um, primarily about love, in this sort of heightened poetic fashion. And not only is the poetry nice, it's funny. It's funny in its very, from a, in a word-to-word level, you know? And it's funny to, to anybody. I think As You Like It is, is so pure in this way that it is not trying to do anything else. It, it really takes the play, it takes the form to its very bare bones. It does not worry itself about making it make any dang sense. You know, the man runs in at the end of the play and tells you everything's all right, and you go, yeah, good. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to spend half an hour for with them figuring out how to make everything all right. You know what I mean? The play's got to end. And they've already said everything that needs to be said in the play. Not much is being, uh, not much thematically is being held up, supported by the plot in this play. It's all about these interactions with the characters, with the dialogue, with what they're what they're talking about. It's all about talking. You know what I mean? So I think that's very interesting about Shakespeare when you when you think about it that way. And I think it might be helpful to try to to appreciate Shakespeare uh, in that way. It helps me appreciate it because sometimes I do get very frustrated with Shakespeare. Anyway, that's all I got for today regarding As You Like It by William Shakespeare, the man himself. Uh, whether he is the son of a merchant, or whether William Shakespeare is a pseudonym of a earl, or what have you, I can't tell you the answer to that, because I have, don't have the interest to look into it. However, I have read some of the plays. That's my that's my credentials today. Anyway, that's As You Like It by William Shakespeare. Uh, thank you for listening today. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend or leave a review or write the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those places. You can visit my website, balkwell.online. Uh, all the shows are posted there and... I'm putting up essays there all the time. Uh, by all the time, I mean every two weeks. You can enjoy those. I know you can. Uh, just believe in yourself. The music is by Max Miller, a.k.a. Fun Bill. Thank you very much for the music. If you have questions for the show, I'd like people to, to ask questions. And uh, if you ask questions, I'll answer them. So you can leave them in the YouTube comments. You can find the show on YouTube. 
uh, or on the comments on Balkwell.online. If you if you ask me a cool question, I'll answer in a show in the future. Um, if you don't, I will get my wife to ask me questions and answer those, and then you'll feel quite left out. So this has been Balkwell once again. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye.